Hi, I'm Hera. And I'm Aisha. And we are the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice, or SMCs. Like you, as SMCs, we decided to become mothers knowing we'd be the sole care provider and parent of our children, at least at the outset. And the Mocha is for Black. We discuss being SMCs from an intentionally Black lens. You'll connect with all the interesting and fun things about this non-traditional path. Like how you decide which sperm to use, the cold, hard truth of fertility, your reality of dating as a single mother who doesn't have a co-parent to rely on for occasional childcare, and what it's actually like to parent as an SMC. This is the Mocha Single Mothers by Choice podcast. So today we are super excited because we have a very special episode for you today, Behind the Curtain, a conversation with Seattle Spurbank. And with us today as our guest, we have Elise Mencias. She is the Clinic Relations Manager for Seattle Sperm Bank, who is here to answer some burning questions we have on what this process looks like from her end. But before we get into that, I wanted to also acknowledge that Elise is a Black mother of a little girl. Elise, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hi, Hera. Hi, Aisha. Thank you so much for having me on here. I definitely listen to your podcast. I'm not a single mom by choice, but I find a lot of overlap in our experiences I'm one of the clinic relation managers at Seattle Sperm Bank, and I started at the beginning of the pandemic, which was a wonderful time to start a new job. And yes, I am also a Black mother. My daughter's now six, and I have my master's in reproductive clinical science from Eastern Virginia Medical School, and I'm just really passionate about all things fertility. Yay! Yay. (laughs) Awesome. All right. So Elise, when we first met, I think one of the first things Tara and I did was we shared our story and you shared your story with us. And we thought that it was a real powerful story and one that needed to be told. A few weeks ago, we did an episode about medical advocacy as it relates to Black women. And we were reminded of your story. And we were hoping that you could share a little bit of your story going through your pregnancy and childbirth with your daughter. Um, If you could share that story with our audience, because I think it's powerful. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I remember listening to that episode. And I remember Hera specifically talking about how her mother was her advocate for her. And I got really lucky with a doctor who was my advocate. And I, he saved both me and my daughter's life. That's just what happened. At 35 weeks, he found out that I was in kidney failure and sent me to the hospital right away. And I still wanted to deliver vaginally. I still have that in my head. So he let me labor knowing that he was going to be out of town. So it was up to the rest of the medical team to kind of talk with me and my now husband about everything, you know, just communicate with us with everything that's going on. So I labored for a couple of days, nothing worked. You know, they were giving me all the, the Pitocin and all the drugs and nothing was working. So we said, Hey, we need a C-section. It's not working. And first of all, nobody wanted to really talk to me about that or why. And in the end, just said, no, (laughs) you know, so here I am laboring (laughs) and they're telling me, no, that they can't do anything. So meanwhile, my doctor gets back after five days of being in active labor. Oh my gosh, I can't even... No meds. I can't, I can't no, even, I can't even just, imagine. Like, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
So at this point, you're probably just like, get this baby out of me now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, so, and you know, he walks in and he's like, I'm so sorry. You're pregnant right now. I find out later that the rest of the staff was really scared to operate on me because I was so sick. So they didn't communicate any of that with me. They just said no. But he gets back and by now it's an emergency. So he rushes me into a C-section. They didn't have even time for an epidural. You know, my husband started gowning up and they kicked him out of the room and they put me to sleep and just pulled her out as fast as possible. So I woke up in the ICU. She was sent to the NICU Mm -hmm. and I essentially didn't even get to meet her for a day and a half. And after I was out, the doctor came and he sat by my side and stayed with me. And I felt really, we're stable. We're here. She's here. But all of the rest of the staff, just, we were unmarried and we look young and we just started getting the comments, the, oh, are you sure you can handle this? And the, you know, this is going to be expensive. And to pay up money for you? I know. I was like, well, you know, you can start a GoFundMe page for diapers if you really want to, but like, <laughs> right, right. So I'm visiting oh. the NICU while healing from this C-section. I'm walking across the hospital because normally when you're recovering, you're in that post-recovery, you're right next to your child. But mm-hmm. I was traveling from a whole nother unit. I wasn't in regular recovery. And I was walking with this C-section to go see her and the NICU would send the lactation consultant. Mm -hmm. And it was weird because I wasn't having any issues breastfeeding. She would just pop up and then she would be confused Mm -hmm. and I would be confused. And we found out it was the nurses who kept calling her in. So then I started showing up to breastfeed my daughter and they would already bottle fed her without... You know, so it was was these little weird things that just started adding up, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was Mm -hmm. one after another. And then it said, you know, then we were like, what's our pathway home? How do we get her home? And they said, well, do you have a car seat? You know, and I'm just like, do you ask? No, we just, we're going to strap her to the top of the car. At this point in time, like my daughter is six. And so (laughs) I know at that point in time, I mean, we're not in the eighties, like, you can't leave the hospital without a car seat. Like we, we all know that, except if you live in New York city, Um, (laughs) but we all know that. And so go ahead, go ahead. I'm just here with my mouth open. Right. You know, and then it was, well, you need to take CPR, you know? So we start jumping through the hoops and we stay. They made you go through like CPR (laughs) to take your kid home? Like, yes, yes. They said you need CPR. Why? Did they explain it's no, no, but you know, we're getting the vibe. We're understanding right. the undertone, mm-hmm. um, Ugh. you know, and then there's like, well, she needs to be able to drink, you know, finish a full bottle before she can go home. And she did, she chugged it, you know, she's a champ. <laughs> she's like, can I go now? <laughs> yes. Yeah. She was right on the same page with us. So then they Ugh. told me I needed to come back into the hospital. So I'd been discharged at this point. I needed to come back into the hospital and spend a night in the hospital to show them I knew what I was doing. So that is nuts. So I came back to the hospital and my husband could not come with me. I needed to do it by myself. Oh, so because, here I am. Because they just assume that like the black man's going to be absent. So many assumptions. So many assumptions. Oh, right. So problematic. So, so I came back, I packed a bag. I spent the night alone healing from a C-section with my newborn daughter 
And so the next day, the doctor needed to come by and give me the okay to take her home. We wait, you know, she's supposed to come by 7 a.m. Then it was, you know, she'll be here at eight. She didn't show up till late after, you know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, Uh she just never showed up. And finally she shows up and she says, well, you're not going home today. First words out of her mouth. I'm like, wow, haven't seen you all day today. So by now we're. Did I not pass the test? (laughs) (laughs) Turns out I don't know how to take care of babies. Um, So she says she needs, you know, our daughter needs some experimental formula. It's really expensive. My husband stands right up and he pulls out his wallet and it's just like, how much is it? How much? I'll pay for it. What do we need to do? And she backs down and says, okay, you can go home. So we run. Pause, pause. Did she not even explain why she was saying you couldn't go home? It all came down to this very expensive formula that we would not be able to afford. That you could not speak English to me and tell me the name of? No, no, no. Okay. Oh, man. Yeah. And I'm like, I've been breastfeeding her. I've been breastfeeding her. Why does she need to be on this formula all of a sudden? She was little. She, you know, we had her at 35 weeks. She weighed four Mm -hmm. pounds, Mm -hmm. but everything was intact. Everything was fine. She was breathing. She wasn't, Mm -hmm. she didn't have any IVs or anything. So this whole situation, you know, she gives us the okay, gets that low jack off and we run, you know, my C-section wound and everything. I'm, we're running. I'm just um, like picturing you and your husband like, let's go. And like, yeah, he's flying. Yeah. And you're like, what's yeah. oh he picked gosh. up He picked up that car seat because I couldn't lift it. He's walking faster than me and I'm trying to keep up behind him. And I'm just telling him, go, go, go. I will make it. Get her out of here. <laughs> go. I mean, how do you go through a trauma like that and like want to go back to the hospital? Like, that's the thing, right? Like, I thank you so much for sharing, first of all. I want to say like how important it is, especially for Black women, for us to start speaking anecdotally about what we're actually experiencing in the medical world and putting faces to the systemic racism that people just don't realize is happening right right the Um, comments about could we afford this can we really take care of her did you know she has to go to the doctor did you and I'm just like do you talk to all your patients like this and I know you don't right 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 yes to Harris point I think that it is important that we we somehow find our voice and actually ask the question and confront you know, do you, do you talk to all of your patients this way? Blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Can I be more specific? Do you talk to only your black patients this way? Because sometimes people try to pretend that they're really dense and that they don't Mm -hmm. get what you're trying to say, but I am very clear. And what I am trying to say here is that I feel as if you are racially profiling me and you are casting Mm -hmm. stereotypes onto me that I find very offensive. Right. Yeah, it's nuts. I will say it also is interesting how quickly they backed down when your husband was just yeah. like enough, right? <laughs> like, yeah. and they knew they knew what they were doing, right? Because it was like you know a quick turn. They were like, oh, yeah. oh, oh, okay, you can go. Like, yeah, no yep. thanks. Okay, yep. friends, let's dive right in. <laughs> so, when women first research this as a path, right? One of the things that can be really daunting is the cost. So I'm really excited to hear all about like, why is sperm actually so expensive? What are we actually getting for that cost? That's great. I mean, all of this, it all adds up. Um, So we try to be very transparent with it. All of our prices are online, but I'll break it down right now. So you want the all access pass so you can actually see the donors and make your decision. And that's $50 for three months. 
And that'll be everything we have. There's no other tier. There's no other access you need. That'll, and that'll just give you the entire profile. If you just wanted to look for donors and just look at their genetics to start with, you could, you could really look at what we have in our database before you purchase this. So if you know you're a carrier of something, you can go in and filter that out and just decide if that's worth it. But yeah, $50 and that's it. And so we have baby photos, the audio interviews, the the full family history, and then you're going to need to buy your vial. So we have a couple of different vial options, but the one that most people purchase for any kind of treatment is the IUI vial, and that's $850 each. Mm -hmm. So in that vial, you're getting all of the testing that we've done on this donor, both genetic and infectious. You're getting a high quality sample that's been verified with specific modal counts, Our guarantee is 10 million modal per milliliter, although we really do exceed that often. We get great feedback from labs. But I want to highlight that what our modal counts are is progressively modal. It's not just something that's moving. It's something that's progressively going somewhere. And an egg is... Basically, this is making sure that the goods are going to meet your egg. Right. 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 It's not <laughs> it's not swimming in a circle. It's not following right. the They're not confused. It's swimming backwards. Clear sperm has a GPS. US yes. 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 We we put that done. we put the low jack on the sperm and then we where are you going? We do great counts. Awesome. Uh, meaningful counts. You're also getting the fact that we vouched for who this individual is. They've gone through background checks, record verification. And we weigh their personality into it. You're getting, you're getting the legality behind it. You know, our donors have signed away their rights and responsibilities to all resulting offspring. It's just you. And then of course, you're either going to ship it or store it. So if you ship it, most of the shipping is $180 with an extra hundred for overnight. I want to caution against overnight. It's just not as reliable, but $180 and that's two day shipping. So pretty Mm -hmm. quick. And all of our vials come with some sort of free storage. So if you get two vials, you get six months of storage for free. And then if you wanted to add more, another six months, it's $200. You get a full year for $350. And that's even lower priced if you're successful and you had some leftover vials. We will discount that storage because we know you give birth. You're not trying to give birth tomorrow. Right. So, so we do that discounted. And then if you just, you were like, I'm done giving birth and you start some vials with us still at our site, we'll buy them back at 50% of the cost. Well, that's good. I think that's a good incentive for people to actually not ship all of them at once. <laughs> right. Uh, Cause then once you have them and you're, you know, it's like trying to figure out what to do with them is a, it can be challenging. And also, you know, you can't recover those costs necessarily. So Elise, in the SMC spaces, we know that there are different flavors of sperm you can get. And by flavors, I mean, you can get anonymous or you can get open ID. And Seattle Sperm Bank has a reputation, a good reputation in our space. um, And primarily because most of your vials are open ID. And if I have that correct, can you explain to us a little bit about the reasoning for that and then your approach to the open ID or anonymous designations? Yeah. So let me explain what open ID is, first of all. It means that 
our donors have contractually agreed to have a some form of communication with any adult offspring in the future. Mm-hmm. So when we first started, we maybe had a couple of anonymous. There's just some people who prefer to have the anonymous donors. But in the end, in our program, you might find one still. So we really mean we're exclusively open ID. It's going to be hard to find an anonymous donor in our program. And mm-hmm. so this means that we will help facilitate communication with any resulting offspring in a nice safe space. Mm-hmm. From an FDA standpoint, they are anonymous because you don't know this person personally. And so that way we're not going to you know, release any identifying information on this person. It's just for the adult offspring and it's up to them to initiate the contact in the same strength. We're not going to release your information to this donor. Mm-hmm. Um, it really feels like mm-hmm. the right thing to do for families and for, you know, families with donor conceived children, because there's mental health studies that show positive mental health outcomes for donor conceived children. Mm-hmm. And it helps create that foundation of what made them where they came from. And that sense of humanness within this kind of awkward space in this right. family building space, you know, you know, in the future, they could say, you know, they could look at this donor and say, this is where I got that, that way I can move my eyebrow. You know, this is the person. Uh-huh. Additionally, there are things like ancestry mm-hmm. and 23 and me, and it just feels like a matter of time before everyone's yeah. open. Anyways, you know, it feels more honest. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of men who are probably nervous about the idea of even the word open ID, right? (laughs) But at the same time, like it doesn't necessarily mean that like, you know, the kid is five and you have like 12 babies out there, right? Like that's definitely not what it means. But I think that you're right in the world of genetic testing, you know, as soon as these kids are of age, like they just have to swab their cheek. And even if you are, you have donated and you go in and do it as well, like, or you decide not to, like, you can't stop like your mom, your sister, someone in your family doing it, and then just connecting to these people. Right. And we prep our donors for that. We tell them this is what it means to be a donor in our program. And so they're ready for that. So if their, you know, mom does that swab and it comes back with this link, it's not going to be a shock, you know, they're saying, yeah, I did that. And these aren't your children. This is the result of your wonderful donation. Right. I love that. I love that. So (laughs) I have two (laughs) follow-up questions because both you and Hera mentioned age and we talk about amorphously, right? So when we say come of age and we say adult children, what age range are we talking about? 18. Okay. All right. So can you take us through a little bit of what that contact might entail or what that might look like? Yeah. So I'm kind of excited to see how this looks too. So we haven't been around long enough to see it firsthand, but the adult offspring would come reach out to us. We keep up with all of our donors. They receive annual physicals with us. So we keep up to date with where they are and how they're doing. So we would then facilitate the communication. That's awesome. We will get to this um, when we talk later because we want to talk about the impacts of COVID. But when you talk about the um, keeping the donor, you know, making sure that they get a physical and things of that nature in this age of COVID with the vaccines, how might that work with a sperm bank? Yeah, I guess really (laughs) it's like, you know, is there a hold on people donating right now? Like, is there, are there less, are there less donors as a result of like health precautions or like how many people can come in at once and things like that. Yeah. So before the donors could casually come in and donate, now it's a strict scheduling system to limit the number of donors who are in at one time. 
and to make sure that they aren't waiting in the lobby at the same time so that it's one person coming in and they're not running into anyone else. Everyone has masks on, everyone's social distancing. As far as the supply definitely has been impacted. So last year, like a lot of other medical facilities, we had to shut down. And so we missed out on those donations. Our labs are located near schools. So as colleges have turned to virtual learning, donors have moved back home. Oh, um, I didn't even think yeah. about that. That's like yeah. such a downer. Yeah. So we've missed out on some donors who come in consistently who just don't live in the area anymore. Mm. So yeah, the supply has definitely gone down. And then on top of that, we normally go out and meet groups on campus to recruit new donors and we can't meet Mm -hmm. anymore. So Mm -hmm. the supply has gone down because we don't have our new donors and we don't have our old donors. Uh So (laughs) I just thought of this, like, I'm just, I'm just imagining people going on campus and being like, so (laughs) (laughs) how does that conversation go down? Like, I'm like, don't, don't, don't you have to abstain before you donate? And so now what does that do to the volume? Because people have been (laughs) abstaining, hopefully during for a year. Um, so does that mean like we get yeah, lots of that, I mean, I guess also how, how, how are they, I don't know. I'm curious as to how that initial conversation goes down and their reaction when they understand what this actually means. I am blushing. I am blushing. Like, I've never said sperm so many times in one day. I'm done. <laughs> yes, sperm is my day. It's it's my life right now. <laughs> no, so yeah, that conversation can be awkward, but we say that head on. We know this is mm-hmm. awkward. And we try to make it a little lighter. We've got uh, cool shirts that, you know, have our logo. Our logo includes a sperm graphic, you know. We're oh, very awesome. We're just like, I can see like some dude goes to his fraternity and he's like, I got my sperm shirt. Fraternities are super supportive about it. You know, and and what it really comes down to is like, yes, you're donating sperm and we know where sperm comes from, but it's a tissue donation. It's donating blood. It's donating bone marrow. It's Mm -hmm. easier than doing those things, Uh but it's a tissue donation at its heart and it's helping a lot of families. So really try to stress that and yeah. bring that home. That helps take away some of the tabooness in the conversation. Um, yeah, I think they totally. get a little shy, but once, you know, all the hoops they have to go through to get into our program, they start uh, to become very dedicated to the cause. They're like, I want to make it. <laughs> all right. Awesome. We have some women who come to our space and they are uncomfortable with the idea of like not meeting this person who is going to, you know, share half of their children's DNA. Right. And so they may opt for a known donor. I wanted to talk through a little bit about like, can they still go to Seattle Sperm Bank? What would this look like if they, you know, they were like, here's my friend, Jack, and, you know, (laughs) he's my donor. Um, How can you help someone like that? Yeah, we love no donors. You know, we definitely love all the ways that families come together, especially being a sperm bank. So if you have someone special in your life, we fully support that. And if that special someone, you know, happens to be near one of our lab locations, we can help facilitate the whole known donor process. We want to make sure that this, although this is someone you know, we want them it to still be safe and 
a vial that's going to get you pregnant. So we'll do both infectious disease testing and we'll do a semen analysis because you don't want to be going through these attempts and it's mm-hmm. already an emotional journey to, you want to understand that this vial is going mm-hmm. to work and it may not be at the same level that we hold our donors to, but you should know the quality mm-hmm. and efficacy that's going into this. Cause male um, infertility is actually a thing, right? I think it's real. people <laughs> will associate that with women, right? Cause, yeah. cause like we're the ones that are actually getting, you know, we're actually pregnant and carrying the baby. But I think it is really important because I think a lot of times women might go the known donor path to save money as well. Right. Because of all those costs, but in the long run, you know, if you're trying over and over again, the emotional toll that that can take on someone when it could be Jack. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I mean, if, if Jack doesn't have any sperm, <laughs> you're not going yeah. to do that with your eyes. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Elise, my donor in my head would be Jamal. All right. Okay. Um, okay. So, sorry. So, sorry. So, so, <laughs> Jamal. So, so let's kind of go with the scenario. So I've got a special someone in my life, a friend or a donor that I met through a Facebook group. And I'm like, this is the one. And I go to your clinic and we settled the fees. They get the testing. How many vials do I get? From this is your known donor. This is yes. Jamal. Mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> we're going to try to get a lot of vials. We will see Jamal over a two week period mm-hmm. and just batch it up for you. So that way, when you're going in for your attempts, you're not having to wait for when he gets off work mm-hmm. to line up when you're ovulating. You know, we want to have these ready to go to be shipped out to whether you're doing home insemination or you're doing a clinic insemination, whatever that looks like for you, we want to make sure that these vials are available and we'll do a free year of storage. So you don't have to worry about those storage costs, you know, take your time. But I want to say it's around $2,000 for the whole thing. And that'll include the testing and all of the batching just have this all available for you. Yes. It's a little bit more expensive than using an anonymous donor, but we really want to do our due diligence the same that we do on the other donors. So this is another question that we get often in our spaces because there are choices of the different sperm banks that we could use. A lot of the moms really like um, Seattle Sperm Bank because of the family limits, right? Because they don't want to have the potential of having 200 donor siblings or, you know, potentially mm-hmm. more running around um, with your children as they become of age, trying to look for their own partners. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Seattle Sperm Bank has a particular reputation for having smaller family limits, which is ideal for some SMCs. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, our family limit is 25 families. Mm-hmm. And this is well below you know, regulations. There's the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, and they have this guidance that says you should have 25 families for 800,000 people. And so we took that as 25 families for the entire U.S. And so we're well below these recommended guidelines. And we stick to that. And really, in reality, what that looks like is we see families starting to come into 11, 12, 13, we'll pull that donor and retire them Mm -hmm. and make them not available for any new families. But existing families could come back and use them as a sibling, you know, for a sibling, Mm -hmm. if they wanted that genetic match there. You know, if you have concerns about having a donor who 
has a higher number of families, you Mm -hmm. can reach out to us. There's a portion of our donors who just don't stay in the program for very long because they joined at the end of college or they joined at the start of COVID (laughs) and went home. Uh You know, we just have donors who aren't in the program as long as other ones. So let us know what your goals are and we'll try to help figure out what works for you. Okay, cool. So that's awesome. I know that media does not help very much with the whole like, oh, you use a sperm donor and you must have like 2000, you know, half siblings out there, which is (laughs) like not the case. So I want to cover, I know a huge concern for a lot of the women in our space. And it was certainly a concern of mine. When I started looking, I was like, you know, I was all excited. I was like, okay, you know, it's, it's, I'm going to go filter and like, see, see what I get. And so I didn't think I was being too picky. But then as soon as I said black, it was like, oh, my options went from like 200 to like three. I know there's like a lot of myths out there as to like where all the black donors are. You know, I want to kind of unpack that a little bit and, and, and hear a little bit about what it's like from your end with regards to why there aren't more. Yeah, that's a great question. If you happen to see any black donors in San Diego, Seattle or Phoenix, or just send them over to us. Jamal. Let us know about the program. Jamal, where are you? Yeah, Jamal. Yeah, let Jamal know he is in high demand. Um, no, but honestly, this the topic of diversity is something that's always at the top of all the conversations when it comes to donors. And it's not just looking for black donors, it's all donors of color. You know, we have so many different clients out there and they're trying to fulfill their family. And we just want to be able to give them you know, those options. <laughs> so we, uh, we try our, our hardest to look for these donors. So we go out to school organizations and we try to approach them and their members and try to do some outreach there. But I know talking about it, you know, we talked about this earlier. It's hard to talk about sperm donation. It's hard for schools to talk about sperm donation. Yeah. I think it, there's also a general stigma in the black community. I mean, I know we as single moms, single black moms face the stigma on the end of like, oh, you must be on welfare. You know, you you must have a hundred babies by like seven different men. And I think for the men, there's a stigma of like, don't have a bunch of babies running around. Right. And so they're not hearing about it as like tissue donation and they're not able to kind of take themselves to that place. I can understand why it might not be as approachable of an option for black men as black men as it would be for say, like, Jack in the white fraternity. Right, right. Yeah, I definitely appreciate that. But yeah, we try to approach it that way. You know, this is a donation that A, supports your dreams and goals because books and classes are expensive. And then B, it's helping a lot of families. You know, you want to help the community. And it's not just white intended parents, it's intended parents of all colors. Mm -hmm. It's really helping your local community. And then our age range is 18 to 39. So it's not just students we're looking at. We try to look at young professionals. So sometimes it's a little easier to approach someone who's finished college and has a family of their own. And it makes the, you know, they understand what it means. You have a kid and somebody wants to share in this joy, but really I think the whole industry struggles with this it's not going to be fixed overnight. There's not like a simple solution. I know I definitely approach my husband a lot with this. Why are, why didn't you donate when you were younger? Where are the donors? <laughs> and that's funny because since we've launched this podcast, I've been talking a lot about sperm 
everywhere I go. <laughs> mm-hmm. so all you my get real, like, real comfortable. I'm, I'm coming for you, friend, uh, guy friend, <laughs> if I haven't had the sperm conversation with you. But I think the more that we have these conversations, these very real and very touching conversations about what it means to be a sperm donor, what it means to be a sperm donor's recipient or, you know, parent um, to a donor conceived child. I think that it opens up a whole world because the woman who goes the um, sperm uh, donor route is an actual person and that there's a reason and that, you know, she might not have ever had a baby without your donation. So to the sperm donors that are out there, thank you. To the men that are out there who this is something new for you, consider donating. Can you take us through um, what a donor might go through from start to finish? Yeah. So it all starts with that semen analysis. So we're going to ask them to come in and Can your boys swim. Yeah, we want to see, can can they swim? And um, most of the time, it's a couple of samples. Can they swim consistently? And it's not just an average sample. It needs to be above average because we know we're going to freeze this. And the freezing process kills about 50% of the sample. So we need to account for that on the front end. So they'll come in and they have like their great sample and we're like, cool, you get to the next part where we're going to ask them a four generation family history interview, where we ask about grandparents and siblings and aunts and uncles and your parents and your children, you know, if they happen to have children and we ask, you know, is there, you know, what have family members passed from your grandparents? What did they pass from if they're, if they've passed or you have any family members who passed in infancy And we try to look for trends. We ask them about cancer and we ask them about, we get very deep on this. And a lot of times they have to go back to their own family and ask these questions. And then we have a genetic counselor on staff who kind of combs through all that and looks for patterns and trends to see if there's a high risk for conditions being passed on to any future offspring. Uh Then they get through that. We start verifying their records and we, you know, if they're, I'm in med school, we want to see the transcripts. And if they say they're a doctor, we want to see the degree. We want to see your license. We want the receipts. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we do a full criminal background check uh-huh. and we fingerprint them. Nice. Um, the fingerprinting part is kind of cool because then we use that as part of the check-in process. So when guys come in to donate, they give a fingerprint. Like so there's no twin brother. Exactly. There's what no you? question here. We know, we know who's going to that cup. <laughs> then they also have to come in and visit our medical director. They get a full physical. We want to make sure they're healthy. They do a metabolic panel. They do a urinalysis. We check for STIs. We do a genetic screening of 175 conditions. It's a lot. And then ongoing kind of in the background is because we get to interact with them so often, we get an idea who this person is and we want them to have a good rep, you know, personality. We want them to be able to represent our company well. And it's kind of cool. It's our client services team who has a lot of these interactions. So it's a really huge plus when you go to have your consult with somebody on our team and they actually know the donor that you're looking at. So you're saying, you know, I want him to have, you know, a cleft chin or I want him to have a strong jawline. I want him Mm -hmm. to be funny we can answer this because we know him, <laughs> you know, but you know what's in. interesting about that is it's like, those things are oftentimes so subjective. Like I remember when I was looking through 
you know, like all the stuff. And and they were like describing this person and how they look like celebrities. And like the two celebrities <laughs> they picked look nothing alike. And I was like, okay, you just picked two like black celebrities. And I know that like sometimes people think black people look alike, but this is making <laughs> it really hard for me to figure out which one he actually looks like. <laughs> well, you know what's funny, Hera? What I did with all of those was I did my own kind of like computer overlay to see what features were the same across these hmm. six people that they I see that's because Aisha is like over organized. <laughs> like I'm not that organized. I'm like, okay, I don't understand. Moving so on. This is why we get into the specific characteristic uh-huh. and personality mm-hmm. trait versus do you look like this guy versus mm-hmm. this guy? Because it is subjective. Or, you know, is he cute? And it's like, well, I think, you know, these five people are cute. Do you agree? Right, with me? exactly. Well, like, what I think you, is I would tell you for, for Hera, Hera's going to be like, do you look like Tay Diggs or Morris Chestnut? <laughs> exactly. I had the hugest crush on Tay Diggs, like, when I was in college. And I ended up on a movie set with him, or not, it was an episode of The West Wing, right? Uh-huh. And I was so dejected because he was like shorter than me. And I was like, oh. <gasps> You're so attractive, but you're so. <laughs> um, I don't care. I still love Tay Diggs. Um, okay. um, but yes, unfortunately, that Tay Diggs lookalike was not an option when I was looking for sperm donors. Had it been an option, I think I probably would have made that one my first choice. You're blushing. Um, oh, so hot. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Funny. Um, After funny. all of these hoops, it's only one in every thousand applicants that actually makes it in the program. Which it's is so hard. fascinating. Like, I'm curious. Like, I want to see behind the curtain. Tell us about like something. What goes on? while working at a sperm bag. Now I know like you've been virtual since you started it. So, you know, this is probably a little different than you would see in like the normal office, but can you share any sort of like funny stories anonymously, of course, because like we don't want to blow up like, you know, Jamal's spot here because we want Jamal to keep donating. But, like, you know, like, Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like uh, it's become pretty normal to talk about like porn subscriptions. I know it's a hot topic to make sure we're covering the right, we have the right access and have the right amount of material available. Are you Uh, inclusive with your porn? I mean, is there a variety of races? It is a variety. So we'll have a subscription (laughs) to a site and then it's like, well, do we get the premium account or do we get the extra premium account? Oh my gosh, that is and, and then you have to make sure that it's maintained because you don't want someone to go in and then have to awkwardly come tell someone, hey, <laughs> the get access. Work. The porn machine's not working. <laughs> like I, I saw oh last gosh. week. Do we have any new material? <laughs> yes, That's yes, so exactly. So yeah, so do you have anybody on your team who's just like super uncomfortable with it and like, can't no, handle those I, conversations or you just get over it fast. Yeah, I think you get over it fast. We're all really, I mean, we talk about ejaculation and the, the porn, and then we, you know, then we have to talk about home insemination and the correct placement of oh, oh my god, where you're awesome. inseminating. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm also curious. We have to wrap soon, but I'm curious, like, what does it look like from like the customer support side? Do you have like any customers who are just like super extra or like any questions that they ask you about the donors that you're just like, hmm, I would never have thought of that one. <laughs> I don't interact with intended parents firsthand for the most part. I think that a personal experience I had and it didn't feel extra. 
but I felt like it was just amazing. Like the stars lined up. I was uh-huh. visiting. So I visit clinics and mm-hmm. I was visiting a clinic and a woman, as I was talking with the clinic, you know, for my meeting with them overheard that I was from a sperm bank and she grabbed me and she said, Ooh, <laughs> can, can we talk? I didn't. So oh. I didn't talk to <laughs> you know, like, sperm bank. Cause I live in California. So I'm in a clinic in California and she's just like Seattle sperm bank. Can you deliver here? What do you have? Bl-? And she's a black woman. So she's, uh-huh. do you have black donors? You? And so it was great <laughs> having this. you now. She was like, great. You for the one black <laughs> yeah. donor. She's like, wait a minute. I heard you have Jamal. <laughs> yes. I heard about Jamal. It was this wonderful podcast I was listening uh-huh. to. Oh, um, awesome. no, yeah, that was really great. I feel like all the intended parent interactions we understand the emotions, you know, I'm going through IVF. We have other team members who've done egg freezing. We have adoption. We have LGBTQ community members. I think we really connect with everyone and understand how emotionally and financially and how sensitive all of this is and how intense it is. So really anybody reaching Mm -hmm. out to us, we've heard it and we understand it. <laughs> yeah. And we won't shame you for it. So it's interesting, like in our space, we, at least to my knowledge, we're one of, if not the only black space for single moms by choice. But when a black donor becomes available at any of the banks, you'll frequently see a woman pop in and she's like, Seattle Spurgeon Bank has a new one. Right. And like, <laughs> sort of on the side, right. Like it's, it's really great to see that we understand how the demand is and, you know, we want to help a sister out. So I love to see that when it happens. So Elise, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, we are really me. excited about this partnership and we appreciate Seattle Sperm Bank's commitment to inclusivity in this space. And we hope to have continued conversations with you all in the future. Well, Pod, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. If you like what you heard, share us with your girlfriends. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So tell us what you thought of this episode on social media. On Facebook, we are at Mocha SMC Podcast. And on Twitter and Instagram, we are at Mocha SMC. You can find additional information on the topics from the podcast at our website at mochasmc.com. Till next time, pod. Bye now.